Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, we examine the origins and methodology of Queer Core Talmud, the study of ancient Jewish wisdom texts through the lens of queer experiences. Our guests are Rabbi B'nai Lappi, President and Rosh Yeshiva of Svara, a traditionally radical yeshiva, Joe Singer, Magid at the JCCSF, and Rabbi Batshir Torshir, Senior Jewish Educator at the JCCSF. And now join our host, Marcy Glazer, former CEO of the JCCSF, as she introduces the program. Well, it is my pleasure to welcome some of my favorite teachers and learners of Jewish tradition to this conversation about um, what the Jewish wisdom tradition has to offer through text study, something that maybe some folks haven't done since learning Shakespeare in senior year English class in high school. But we've got a lot more to talk about on that front. Let me introduce first uh, myself. I'm Marcy Glazer. I'm the former CEO of the JCC of San Francisco for about seven years, a uh, learner of Jewish text study myself, both through uh, some of the programs you're going to hear and through um, through many years. Uh, so let me start with a brief introduction of our three conversation participants. First, B'nai Lappi. B'nai is a rabbi ordained by the Jewish Theological Seminary and is the founder and head of Savara, a traditionally radical yeshiva, an award-winning educator specializing in the application of queer theory to Talmud study. We'll explain what that means. B'nai was named to the Forward's 2014 list of most inspiring rabbis, their 2018 list of sexiest Jewish intellectuals alive. She says she's both embarrassed about this and also more sheepish about the intellectual part than the sexy part. And she has been named to the 2020 forward 50 list of most influential American Jews. While learning and teaching Talmud are her greatest passions, Rabbi Lappe is also a licensed pilot, shoemaker, and patent-holding inventor. In conversation with B'nai is Joe Singer, the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco's Magid, a Jewish teller, which could include preaching or teaching, telling or listening to stories, working to make ancient Jewish texts relevant to people today, and of course, cracking a joke every now and again, but no pressure just. He brandishes a master's degree in Jewish studies to back up his ideas and interpretations of scripture. He has studied with B'nai and Svara for much of the past 20 years and has brought Svara method pedagogy to the JCCSF in the Queer Core Talmud and Original Inc. programs. Also in conversation is Bachir Torquio, Rabbi Bachir Torquio. Bachir is a senior Jewish educator at the JCCSF, where she engages community members ages 2 through 102 in Jewish ritual, holiday celebrations, and getting curious about all of it altogether. She devotes the focus of her heart and soul to bringing a relevant rethinking about our ancient Jewish texts. Bachir has studied Talmud throughout her adult life in a number of settings, but only within the last three years as a student at Svara has she found serious study of ancient text as a spiritual practice that helps develop radically 
empathetic human beings. So welcome to each of you. Let's maybe start with this idea that Jewish text study is a spiritual technology. Um, perhaps you can each share a little bit of personal experience about uh, what brings that phrase to life. And uh, since Jewish tradition cares very much about the transmission of tradition, perhaps B'nai will start with you as, uh, as the innovator here. All right, thank you. Well, first of all, I'm so honored to be here. Um, and about text studies a spiritual practice, you know, before I went to rabbinical school to become a rabbi, even though I had been born and raised in a Jewish family and we were very traditional Jews, I had left the tradition, um, moved to Japan, and became a very devout Buddhist. And I found a sense of God sitting in meditation. And it was only when I was on my way to becoming a Buddhist monk that I started to have uh, feelings of Jewish guilt that led me back to my own tradition to clean that up and decide if, in fact, my path was going to be a Buddhist one or a Jewish one. So I figured, okay, I'm going to give this six years. I'm going to go to the place where the people who know the most about Judaism go and figure out if that's going to be my path. And that was rabbinical school. Um, and when I got to rabbinical school, I discovered Talmud. So Talmud is a 2,000-year-old text. And as I was learning it, I experienced something very familiar. And the experience I had was both what was happening for me in the Zendo, what happened for me as I was meditating, and also what happened for me as a child at the, at the kitchen table, at the dinner table when we would be discussing and arguing um, every night. But the fact that I found the sense of God learning text and not in the synagogue setting praying was an eye-opener for me. And I think it, it turns out that the text study is one of the Jewish spiritual technologies, not so much for transmitting information, not so much for handing down wisdom, but for changing people but for shaping the human being. And for 2,000 years, we've been really bad at exporting this technology from the 1% of Jews, male, heterosexual, cisgender, um, orthodox leaning and believing, to the rest of Jews and outside of our boundaries. And I think that the most successful wisdom traditions figure out a way not only to permeate their own folks, but to transcend their boundaries and export their spiritual practices. Hinduism has done a great job with yoga. Buddhism has done a great job with meditation. And Svara exists to move this practice of study, not for the information, but for the way it transforms us into a certain kind of human being. And I can talk more about that later. And we will talk more about the specific way in which you've transformed the learning experience, both for the teacher and for the, uh, for the student. Um, Jose, is there a text study moment that you would uh, want to share that set you on this path? Yeah, um, there, were, there were two. 
One was when I was very, <clears throat> very new at this, and it wasn't even Talmud yet. We were studying the seminal text, the Torah, and I knew nothing. I had maybe 10 words under my belt. And we studied this piece that is usually translated as, and, um, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. It's a famous line. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't, the, the words aren't parallel. The words bless and bless are parallel in the first clause. But in the second clause, it uses two completely different words. And when we looked at those words, one of them means to like brush off, like to make light of something. Like in those who make light of you, and then it has this word, I'll say it in Hebrew, aor. And I heard the word or in there. And believe me, like I had the vocabulary of a, you know, a one and a half year old. But I knew the word or meant light. And when we looked it up, you can make a pretty good grammatical case that it doesn't actually say, it could mean or could come from the root that means to curse, or it could come from a root that has to do with enlightenment. And I remember just like, I felt like I was like falling through layers of deception and landing in this, in this pocket of truth. And those who make light of you, don't worry about it. I'll enlighten them. Doesn't that make so much more spiritual sense? I will enlighten those who, who don't get you, the people who don't see you, who don't understand you, and you're so frustrated and you're so angry. Don't worry. I'll enlighten them. Like, I remember just, like, practically bursting into tears, you know? Wow. So, um, the, and that was even before I met Benet. And I didn't know, like nobody else that, I mean, my, my teacher at that time was really good about like, yeah, that's a good, that's good you chased that down. Um, but it was some years later, maybe nine years later that I met Benet and that was what she was doing. She was like, if you chase these words down by yourself or with your chavruta, you're going to, you're going to see things that you and only you can see. And that was the spiritual practice for me. So, Joseph, you just used the term chavruta, and maybe, Bakshir, as you introduce your experience of, of, that has led you to this work, you can also uh, maybe help, uh, help us understand what that term refers to. Thank you. Chavruta is um, study partners uh, that comes from the word chaver, a friend. There is a friendship and an intimacy that develops across text. Uh, when we together interrogate text and bring our own voices and our own traumas and our own experiences to the text, we develop um, a relationship of mutual respect and give and take over this ancient text. That is what a hevruta is and how it, how it functions. You know, I want to offer an example of how the Svar pedagogy has really has become a spiritual practice for me and has transformed the way I think of myself as a learner and a teacher. So l let, me, let me just say first that this far method, and, and perhaps Benet, you'll share more about this, um, involves taking each word of a piece of text and looking it up and really interrogating 
that word, looking at the root, finding other places where it exists in other texts. So I had grown up with this with this understanding of the word olam, the shoresh or the root of it is ayin lamid mem, as being universe, as in this uh, phrase tikkun olam, repair the world, a Jewish ethic to go out into the world and make it a better place than the, the, the space you were born into. And so I come across this word olam in, in my studies, and I assume that it means universe, but then I looked it up. <laughs> And I found that it also means hidden or hide or mystery. And so my Havruta, my study partner and I, looked at that and we, you know, and this happens over and over again when you're when you're learning in the Svara Beit Midrash, we paused on that and said, okay, there's something, there's something really powerful here. And where we took that was, what does it mean to hide in the universe or, or to hide and be everything at once? And we took that to another level and asked the question, what does it mean for God to be infinite and in the universe and also hidden? It's one example of how this method is a spiritual practice for me. It was not always the case. I will say that the the Talmud learning, the text study and the text learning that I had done before then was very much uh, what bell hooks would call the, the banking system where information was, was provided that I would ingest and then I would reproduce it. And that was fine enough and it taught me a skill around text study. I just want to share this one last thought for now, which is when I got to Sfara, the difference I can describe in this way. There's a word in Hebrew, Natan, from Lenotain, right? Is it, that's it, right? Lenotain? Um, which is to give, as in Notain Torah, to give the Torah. Um, Natan is a palindrome. When I got to Sfara, all of a sudden, Torah and Talmud study, or t- Talmud study, was the act of both receiving from the text and giving to the text. And previously, I was only taking from the text. The text didn't seem to need or want anything from me. But in fact, it does, and it needs me, and it needs all of us and all of our voices. So that in itself has just been absolutely a, a, a shapeshift for me, and I'm so grateful for it. So maybe, Vinay, now is a good time for us to explain, for you to help us understand a little bit more about um, some of the words that have been discussed already, um, Torah, Talmud, and what is Svara, and what are, what are some of those key insights that led you to, um, to create something that has clearly impacted so many people who um, either have felt close to the tradition or in many cases have been on, quite on the margins, as you alluded to earlier. Okay, so what is the Talmud? First of all, it depends on who you ask. But since you asked me, I'm going to tell you what I believe the Talmud is. I believe the Talmud is a record of how to take what you've been given, the tradition you've inherited, in the state it exists when you get it, and make it better. It's an instruction manual for how to upgrade your spiritual tradition. That's what it's about. It's for people who are invested in that project. And it's an enormous 
work. You know, it takes up a whole uh, bookshelf, 37 or so volumes, and um, its surface content covers pretty much everything in life. But like all great literature, it's not about what it's about, right? Moby Dick, you'd be misunderstanding Moby Dick if you thought it was about you know, how, how can I fish? Tell me how to fish. No, every, all great literature has themes that transcend the surface content. Well, the Talmud also has a theme, and that's the theme. How can I be a player, um, a person who brings my lived life experience, my insight from that experience, which the rabbis 2,000 years ago called svara? that gives me an insight into like a, a, a knowing about what's broken in the world and what needs fixing. And the more outsider I am, the more marginalized I am in my life, the more I know about that. The queerer you are on whatever plane of queerdom, and I'm using queer very broadly, not just about sexual orientation or gender, but whatever profound experience of marginalization you have, you can mine that for insight into how the world is broken and how it needs to be better. And if you bring that back to your tradition or to the center, you have a lot uh, to give. And so Sfara is a queer and trans project. And the people we are most interested in are the folks who have the most marginalized experiences. And we elevate this very old but until recently sub, kind of submerged concept that Svara is a source of God's insight. 2,000 years ago, the rabbi said, your moral intuition, your Svara, your inner sense of, of what God wants of us and how the world should be is equal to Torah. And you can use it to even overturn and amend Torah. And that's a very powerful idea. And at the end of the day, that idea says the Jewish tradition trusts you. It knows you are going to be learning faster than the tradition is able to grow and you are going to be able to bring those learnings from your lived experience to the tradition, and that's your job. And those insights you have are Torah. They're from God. So we trust you. So you've just laid out a whole series of radical statements that are awesome to imagine from who's learning which you said at the very beginning, folks who were excluded from the ability to learn, to what you're taking out of the text. You're listening to Queer Core Talmud, the study of ancient Jewish wisdom texts through the lens of queer experiences. With our guests, Rabbi B'nai Lapi, Magid Joe Singer, Rabbi Batshir Torshio, and Marcy Glazer, and Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Joe, maybe you can talk a little bit about 
what it feels like to encounter this thing called the Talmud, which through history usually has a kind of negative connotation. Talmudic reasoning has some sort of feeling of being focused on meaningless details. Um, it comes in these volumes that you can feel pretty marginalized by opening a page of, the, of one of these books of Talmud. Can you just maybe just explain, like, literally, what are you seeing and what are you doing in what space? Maybe give us a little bit of a language so that we can dive a little bit deeper. Sure. You know, my experience with Talmud as a Magid is these are my peeps. Like, I'm a Magid and not a rabbi because I didn't go the kind of um, path that would really train me up in being a culture keeper, right? So a, a big job that rabbis have is to make sure that the culture is being, you know, I hate to use this word, but I'll use it, enforced, right? There's a right way and a wrong way. There's a, you know, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way that we're going to encounter new things and figure out how to do it the way we've always done it, that sort of thing. And I didn't, I didn't end up getting training to learn how to really do that. The training that I got was really about how to keep building culture. And I think that what I encountered with B'nai was she was like, yeah, that's what these original rabbis were doing. They were innovating. They weren't enforcing because there was nothing to enforce. They were, you know, making things up. But you keep talking about the rabbis, and I'm not quite sure how the rabbis fit into what the Talmud is. Great. Okay. So in short, Judaism started as a cultic practice and there were priests and they were the people with the power and there was building where all of the rituals took place. And then that got destroyed a couple of times, in fact. And somewhere along the line, all of these teachings got written down in something that we now refer to as the Torah or the five books of Moses. And which is a cryptic text at best. It's got a lot of winking and nodding. It's got a lot of contradictions, a lot of paradoxes, but that's our sacred text. And when that, that way of interpreting that text, which was build a building, kill these kinds of animals, eat this part, burn this part, these are the people who do the jobs, all of that, when that all was ruined... It was exactly what, it, that was the moment that B'nai was talking about. That was the tradition. And who is going to rebuild that tradition? The folks who looked and saw that that tradition wasn't actually meeting the needs of the people in the first place. And slowly but surely, maybe before it fell, maybe who knows exactly when, but by the time it fell, there were enough people who said, hey, we got, a new, we got a new plan. And what ends up becoming the Talmud are those conversations. It's not written down for a heck of a long time. It was all oral for a long, long time, for centuries. And it's finally written down when people are, when the tension of diaspora is pulling the people apart and they realize this is all going to fall away from us if we don't preserve it in some kind of way. So it gets written down. And because they're writing down centuries' worth of conversations, they write them down in very, very terse and, and often coded kind of language. And so it might include a funny story about a situation and then a serious conversation about what that situation required in order to get through it. 
um, we're in the period of Hanukkah right now. So this is an example. Can I give an example? Is this a good time to do that? Okay, great. So they're talking about it's Shabbat and we've got some stuff in that Torah that tells us what Shabbat is. And they decide we should have light on Shabbat. And they're having a big, long conversation about what can you use to make the candles for Shabbat? What can you use? Tallow? Can you use wax? And what kind of wick? And it's that, what you just described, Marcy, that picayune, detail-oriented, you know, well, no, I don't think we should use that. These guys are like yammering back and forth. And in the middle of this, they start saying, oh, yeah, well, during Hanukkah, we can light these kinds of lights because we use them in a different way. And they're going on about what you can use to light your Hanukkah lights. And in the middle of this whole thing, somebody goes, hey, wait a minute. What is Hanukkah anyway? It's it's this word, my Hanukkah. What's that? What's Hanukkah? What's with the Hanukkah? And in one paragraph, they change a historical, allegedly historical event into a miracle story in one teeny tiny paragraph. It's this incredible art of storytelling that establishes the bones of a part of the culture. And on those bones, we have now added the flesh of the way that we have over centuries interpreted this eight-day holiday that has ranged from like play games, uh, light lights, eat foods, these kinds of foods. And that culture-making piece continues on to this very day, right? In America, we said, give presents. Why give presents? Because everybody else is giving presents. It's our way of adapting. We've got a story. It works. And we can plug in um, these these new ways of interpreting that story. That's what the quote-unquote rabbis, those early innovators, laid down, as B'nai said. They showed us how to do this. The content may or may not be important, but the process of establishing traditions, establishing ideas, and making them practical is what you find in, you know, in every page. Every single page on the Talmud has multiple versions of that. So an origin story of a, of a holiday that um, you might imagine would run to pages and pages and books and books, and in fact, it's, it's a paragraph. If you were going to study that, Bachir, when you, before you came to Sfara, what would it look like to study Talmud. Yeah, thanks. I um, so I I was provided a very rigorous education that included very serious Talmud study, and at the, and I'm very grateful for that. Do you remember back in grammar school or elementary school when you were taught how to what, what was that called? There's a technical term for sparsing a sentence, for laying out its grammar. I was diagramming. Diagramming, thank you, Benet, exactly. And I remember sitting in rabbinical school and diagramming Talmud in, in that exact same way to understand which binyan, which uh, grammatical um, building, the, the building blocks of grammar the, these particular words were coming out of and what the, um, what the major argument was and the minor argument and how the law is derived from from these particular arguments and done that was that it was given to me i learned how to understand law based on a lot of these stories in the talmud 
I felt very much on the outside of that experience. I felt like I wasn't really invited into the um, millennia-long practice of Talmud study. Um, there was some skepticism around it, around the, pe- the people around me about my ability to actually study Talmud in that monolithic way that had been practiced for so, so very long. And B'nai, for a very long time, uh, Jost was saying, Bachir, you've got to study, come study at Sfarah. You have to study this Sfarah uh, pedagogy. And I, I both, I really had to look at my own, I don't say this lightly, trauma around Talmud study, and also how exhausting that felt to me. And I had no idea that Talmud study could look and feel like this, and that this Beit Midrash really was invested in me and my learning and and hearing my voice adding my voice to the to the discussions and so much to learn about how to teach and how to lead in in the Talmud so B'nai before I throw it to you I just want to um, let's sketch for a second what the common understanding is maybe within the tradition but also in popular culture of what's going on here I'm imagining big bookshelves with tall folios, they're embossed in gold, you open them up, maybe they creak a little bit, you look at it. Tell us about what a Svara Beit Midrash, and what is a Beit Midrash for that matter? What does it feel like, and what are you intending with it that lets these kinds of amazingly um, impactful experiences happen? Well, a lot of what you described also happens at Svara. So those very same large folios with the gold writing um, are what we use at Svara. In fact, that must that must be the traditional part of the radical yeshiva. <laughs> that's one of the traditional elements for sure. And and one of the beautiful moments learning at Svara is when um, every student is very ceremonially presented with their volume of Talmud. And there are a lot of tears at that point. Um, And it's an important moment because it says, this tradition is yours. You own this. This belongs to you. It has always belonged to you. Um, And those ideas that you are not welcome here, that you're not important, that your voice isn't essential, those were wrong. So what's different at Svara is really who's in the room. For one, that's the first thing that's different. So as I said, Svara is a yeshiva whose demographic at the center of the bullseye are queer and trans folk. And what we're doing in that room is also different from what has in the last couple of hundred years become what Talmud study is for. Um, but it's not originally what Talmud study was about. We are jumping back in history to resurface the original goal of Talmud study, which is both to hand over the keys, or as Joe says, transmit the code, right, of how to upgrade your tradition, and also to transform the learner of the Talmud into the kind of person who is going to do that. So that's, that's the transformational practice and goal of Talmud study. First of all, to change who you are. And that, that person that it's trying to change you into being and that the practice 
is designed to change you into being is a person who is deeply empathic, profoundly connected to others, who can tolerate contradiction, paradox, complexity, uncertainty, who is active rather than passive, who is challenging rather than compliant. That's the kind of human being we're out to create. So how do you do it? How do you do it? Okay, so um, there are four steps to the Svara method. So I'll walk you through it. The first step, the first thing you're going to do in a Svara method learning space, which is a Beit Midrash, a house of learning, is you're going to be given an orientation to your materials. You'll be um, shown what tools you have, and we have lots and lots of scaffolding tools to help you um, make your way through this text. And everyone, by the way, remember, comes with the ability to decode their Aleph Bet. So that is the one entrance requirement. You're going to have to spend a weekend learning your Hebrew alphabet. Just to sound it out. Okay, that's the ticket price to get in. First step in the method, and it's a four-step method, is first to work with your study partner, and you're going to sit opposite your study partner, and across the table, you're going to have your volume of Talmud in front of you. They're going to have their volume of Talmud in front of them. You're going to be working on the same page, and you're going to work one word at a time, with your dictionaries and your other tools to try to figure out what is what does each word mean. And the fact that you're working in the original is very important. Both Joseph's story and Bachir's original stories of that it, that light bulb moment of seeing something in the text that wasn't on, apparent on the surface happened because they were learning in the original. Had they been learning in translation, they would have run quickly over the word uh, forever or curse, and it wouldn't have prompted a searching or process of creation in them. So the, the opacity of a text in some other language is an essential component to being able to pull out of you those half-discerned insights that you carry in your life. Just, you're doing this right now with learners at the JCCSF in what's called Original Ink. Do you have a current example of, of how this notion of encountering the text in its original language has played out? I mean, just what B'nai said, when the minute you tell somebody who shows up I mean, it takes courage to show up. It's like showing up at a gay bar for the first time back in the 1970s, right? You're like terrified. Somebody's going to see you there. And it's like, yeah, well, who else is here? You know, the same people who are terrified. So uh, there's a little bit of that same sense of trepidation when people walk into the Beit Midrash for the first time. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm doing this. I don't know what I'm doing. I shouldn't be here. I'm an imposter, blah, blah, blah. The minute you say, no, you are exactly who we want here. And now we're going to entrust this text to you. It is yours. Now tell us what it means. It's a mind-blowing moment. And, you know, I think B'nai and I, and I think all three of us, we've seen this happen. We also, um, 
both the Swara, all the Swara method Beit Midrash are usually mixed level. So you might have people who are there for the very first time, just like B'nai said, just learned their, their alphabet the weekend before. And you might have somebody there who went through rabbinical school and has got a PhD in Talmud. So, Josh, you told me a story, um, I think it was about the, about the term for um, speaking. Yes, that's the one I was going to tell, because this is the, the word to speak, you'll be shocked to learn, is all over Jewish text, right? Because it's a talky kind of situation. So if you know one, you know, verb root, you should know this one, right? It's Aleph, Mem, Resh, and because it's, it's, every, it's in virtually every sentence. And so this word Amar, which, you know, means he said, we all know it means he said, right? Like anybody who's studied it all, they would never look that word up because they know what it means. So B'nai gives the instructions, sit with your, your Hevruta, with your study partner, and look up each word. Well, the two rabbis who sit down to study, they don't look up Amar. They know what it means. But the brand new ones, just barely, it takes them an hour to look up that one word. Their entire session is spent on finding Aleph, Mem, Resh, Amar. They, and okay, and then we all come back and I'm going to, I'm going to spoiler alert. Step two um, is when we come back and we, we share out what we have discovered and we unpack the text. So... Um, you know, I will ask, okay, the first word, who's got the first word? Oh, the rabbis put up their hand. Great, great. And can you read it and tell me what it means? Amar, he said. Okay, great. Um, did anybody else get something different? And I'm modeling this exactly on what I've seen B'nai do a million times. Um, did anybody, great, thank you. That's awesome. Did anybody else get something different? And you might see one of the, the new folks, you know, very tentatively put their little teeny tiny hand up and they look like they're, you know, they're wincing, you know, but they've found the courage to say, I found something different. You say, okay, great. What did you find? And they said, well, we looked it up on, and it was on page 78 and it said, to join, to to link, to bind together, to connect. And I'll say, or B'nai will say, or Bajir, whoever is the learner at the front of the room, will say, awesome, where did you find that? And they say, it was in the dictionary on page 78. And you'll go, that's fantastic, to, to link, yes. And can you go down a little further? To link, to bargain, to contract, to negotiate, to put words together, speech, to say, right? And that flow of, oh my gosh, speech is the way we bind ourselves to each other. Speech is the way we make agreements. Speech is the way we connect in this tradition. And then, boom, the rabbis are opening their dictionary up to page 78 and going, wait a minute, I didn't know that. And you tell you what, they look up every word after that. <laughs> so it sounds like a, quite a democratic environment. This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who've spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's program is Queer Core Talmud, the study of ancient Jewish wisdom texts through the lens of queer experiences, with our guests Rabbi B'nai Lapi, Monkey Joe Singer, Rabbi Batshir Torshio, and Marcy Glazer. 
Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. All right, Bene, if step one is to sit face to face, can you walk us through, uh, through the next pieces of what it means to learn in the Beit Midrash? Sure. The second step is when all the pairs come together in what's called shiur. Nashur is the group discussion where, as a group, we unpack, decipher, and discuss the text that um, everyone had prepped, prepared in Chevruta. And Jose called the teacher the learner in front of the room. So I want to point out that the shiur, this group discussion, doesn't feel like most learning spaces. And that has to do with how Svara started 20 years ago. So I want to crank back the clock uh, to tell you what we discovered inadvertently. And that is that I started Svara 20 years ago not to teach Talmud. I started it to learn Talmud. I started it because I had just gotten out of a six-year rabbinic program having been in the closet. And I knew I needed to start all over again learning from scratch as my out queer self. And I needed a bunch of queer people to be in the room in the Beit Midrash with me to do that. So I kind of threw a yeshiva, like you'd throw a party, hoping that queer folks would come into the sandbox with me to learn. So my stance as the person in front of the room wasn't so much to teach, it was to be a learner. And it turned out that just accidentally through that dynamic, um, we discover, discovered something really powerful about the learning teaching process. And so now we have this rule. It's called the 80-20 rule. And the 80-20 rule is that the learner in front of the room, commonly known as the teacher, can never walk into the room to teach a text that they know better than 80%. Because then it's, then it's just stupid. Then it's just you acting out, uh, look how smart I am. I want you to know this, you know, that banking model of education that Bachir was talking about. We're not interested in that. Um, you know, that, that teacher who only knows the text 80% really authentically needs the learners to help them figure out this text. So we're only on step two, Benet, and already we have busted open the concept of who should be in the Beit Midrash, and then we have blown the minds of the teachers, or in your lexicon, the learners at the front of the room. I can't wait to hear about what step three and step four are. Okay, so in most um, Jewish learning spaces, this would be the end of your encounter with this particular text. You prepared it with your chavruta, in shiur, you discussed it, clarified the meaning, and then in most yeshivas, in most uh, places of learning Talmud, academies of Talmud learning, you would move on to the next text. But I realized when I started to learn Talmud that the kind of knowing that we're used to holding, that is perfectly adequate for most activities and functions in our lives, that kind of sort of knowing that, yeah, I get it more or less, that really is perfectly adequate in pretty much every area of our life, 
is completely inadequate for Talmud study. If you're going to really be a Talmud learner, and if the Talmud is going to have that powerful transformational effect on you, that kind of knowing doesn't work. There has to be a much deeper, clearer, sharper knowing. So I developed what I've since learned is a practice in rare yeshivas around the world, but I didn't know, and I was inventing it for myself, a process called chazara. Chazara means returning. You return to the text, you review the text. So now you go back into a partnered setting. Everyone is in their individual partnered settings in the room or in their homes if we're learning online. And you go back and review the text word by word, now you're integrating what was unpacked in the conversation in Shior, in step two, and new insights as you really groove what's going on in the text in yourself. This is where your molecules and the text molecules come together. This is the magic step. Um, And we learn in this step to the point of memorization, to absolute mastery, memorization, so that you can recite the text, not from the rote kind of memory that, you know, or memorization that you experienced maybe in sixth grade when you had to memorize a poem or the whatever, the Declaration of Independence or the Gettysburg Address. This is different. This is not how much text can you stuff into yourself. It's can you pull the text out of you? Can you create it from your deep, deep understanding of it? And we never try to memorize or recite until we have a deep understanding of the text and can talk it out um, really well. Okay, so that's the magic step. And then the fourth step is coming back to Shior, back to that group setting. Um, And those who wish or are sometimes voluntold, will recite. And the text coming through them as they recite it with, you know, feeling and intonation is often a fourth relearning of the text for everyone else in the room. So the result is a sense of deep ownership, confidence and empowerment, and also um, hopefully a person-shaping event where you you come out a more refined human being in those characteristics that that I described. So I had a chance to encounter this method once and uh, with you, B'nai, and also with, with Jose. And the one word you have left out so far is joyous. Yeah. I have never been in a learning place with such raucous Joy, Benet was a joyful from the very beginning. How did this? How did this evolve? Yes. Oh my goodness! If you get a bunch of queer people in a room, and you say you can learn Talmud now, you are a player in this tradition, and you are essential. And I need you to be here. You can have a lot of happy people, and and that's how Svara started. And what has become our attention to culture was something that just happened naturally 
because of Svara's biography, because as an institution, we were this oasis of safety and love and joy. That sort of affinity space and I'm and I'm a big fan of affinity spaces generally not just queer spaces but all sorts of affinity spaces I think they're essential to to get back to who we are and what we have to bring to other spaces to figure that out and there will be joy and there will be love and there will be a sense of liberation and what we eventually realized was that we weren't teaching for liberation. We weren't teaching how to create a liberatory world. We were enacting a liberatory world and then going, oh, now I've experienced it. I have a taste of it. I know what it looks like. I know, now I know how to recreate it. Now I can do that out there. And Bell Hooks also talks about the practice of freedom. The, the learning environment is, is not teaching you how to, but it is practicing the thing itself. So culture eats everything for breakfast, and culture um, in every Svara Method place is at the top of the list of what's most important. And it is about love and joy and celebration and really valuing people who have not traditionally been seen to be important. Used to be or in other spaces, you're valuable if you know a lot of stuff. That's the person with the most importance or status or value, if you've got lots of knowledge in you. Okay, that's important-ish sometimes, but it's not the most important thing. Um, I mean, first of all, how, uh, how profound to talk about needing and wanting and spreading love through uh, a community to, that has a common purpose in shaping themselves, encountering a thousands of year old texts. I mean, how, how beautiful. Uh, but maybe before we move to Joe's, just a few words about what kind of programs Savara runs, because I don't think we, I don't think we talked about that. Sure. We do a daily half hour learning and we do one-off programs. We used to call them one-night stands. I don't think we do that anymore, but the idea was it's an intensive one day of learning. Um, most of our programs are weekly over a, you know, a semester-long period of time. So six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. Over the course of September to June, we're all online. And then in the summers, uh, we're in person. And so it will be two, uh, 90 minutes typically, sometimes two hours at a time. Find your joy every week. Absolutely. Or Excellent. every day. Or every day. So, so Joe, you are bringing this way of learning into the JCC world uh, and trying to cultivate all of these kinds of attributes. you want to talk a little bit about what it feels like to move beyond uh, a more contained affinity group space into a, a more, a broader, a broader environment? Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I, I want to just also say that Svara really walks its talk. You know, that story that Bachir told earlier about, you know, um, Hanina, who's the, Who's the like? Don't worry, I'm so smart. You know, I can, I can keep Torah alive in the world. 
uh, versus Chia, his teacher, who said, actually, you need to teach us the other people and let them go teach it in the world. That's the way Svara does it. And, and when Svara, you know, um, had grown to a point where they had to decide what was the next big trajectory, their decision was, let's train teachers and let's have them start their own Svara method, um, Beit Midrash for their constituency or and and find the people that they love and you know or that they want to welcome into the space and so i'm one of those fellows i got to had the great pleasure of getting to learn this pedagogy um and a big shout out to our roche something roche education the 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 I don't even know what anybody's terms are, but Lainey Solomon, who is a wunderkind and um, was able to, to, you know, take a look at what Benet was doing and turn it into something replicable. And I'm one of those uh, replications. And that was about four and a half, I think four and a half, almost five years ago. And now we have got our own Svara Method Beit Midrash right here in the San Francisco Bay Area called Queer Core Talmud. We have three, usually three sessions a year. The next one is coming up that will be starting in um, February. So if people out there listening have gotten excited about this, please go on the JCCSF uh, website in the next few weeks and uh, Google Queer Core Talmud and you'll find this program. And what we, the way we describe it is it's a queer normative space. Um, that we're privileging people's unique, as as the way that Benet put it, their profound uniqueness, um, and the, those things that have caused them to be marginalized. Whether that is because, you know, simply they are cisgendered women, they could be, you know, straight cisgendered women, but they've been excluded from this kind of an experience in most spaces. And, um, you know, certainly LGBTQI folks are, you know, warmly, warmly welcome. Um, But so are people who are not even Jewish. Maybe their queerness is that they're not Jewish and they come into a Jewish space and say, I want to study the most, you know, hardcore way, Um, you know, and we just try our very, very best to encourage people to show up with their unique point of view, their unique experience, their wounds, their hopes, their fears, their vulnerabilities, and their truth. And to try by having somebody right at your shoulder, your chavruta, um, to, to support you and to even to lovingly challenge you and challenge your ideas in a loving and supportive way, being able to go like, whoa, 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 what did you just say? That's amazing. I could have never thought that in a million years. I need to understand it better. Can you please drill down on that a little bit for me? Um, the amazing, amazing things that surface in that space. We just finished a, a session where we were using this method to, as Butcher says, to interrogate uh, Torah. And I had met somebody a while back and encouraged her to come to this uh, learning. And she was very reluctant. She had a million questions. She's Jewish, but she did not have the greatest experience growing up with this kind of learning. And she was pretty resistant, but she was like, okay, all right, I want to try this. And uh, she sent me a text and she said, I really enjoyed your class. Fantastic job. It was way more interesting than I imagined it's been really nice to learn some fundamental things about my history. It would really have helped me so much as a kid if they told us this is basically a history of the people and all of that stuff, right? That it was, she wasn't taught this is a history of a people. She was taught 
this is the way you're supposed to think, this is what it means to be a Jew, we do this, we do that, etc. Now that is a really hard way to own an identity. And what we try to do at Queer Core Talmud and at Svara and at the and there's a, there's another one in the East Bay called Seven Hundred Benches. There are these uh, various projects around the country now, thanks to Svara, that we're we're trying to say this is about people, this is about our combined history as human beings struggling with all of the challenges that we generate ourselves mostly with oppression with xenophobia, with fear, with, you know, economics, all of those things are, are questions. And how do we stay connected to the source through all of that to get back to that original idea that this is a spiritual practice? And one of the other, what, I wanted to add one thing because it's so important. We didn't talk about it. We didn't do it. Um, but I'll do it right now. I want to dedicate this learning to our beloved um, teacher and friend, um, to B'nai, and uh, for, for in the Svaraverse as the Rosh Hashiva, and to uh, the former CJO of the JCC of San Francisco, Rachel Brody, to her and Mapari. We begin every session with dedications. We begin every session with people that we love or who challenged us, who helped us sharpen our edge, who helped us see ourselves clearly, whose memory we hold, whose healing we pray for, that's where it starts. And I think that's where that's where we're trying to go. Thank you, Jos. Thank you, Bachir. Thank you, Benet, for this conversation. We also start the Beit Midrash with singing, but I think um, we will give up the singing in, in honor of that beautiful tribute to your teachers as we maybe all can walk away from this conversation thinking about the teachers who have inspired us to become the people we are at this moment. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. Thank you. And thank you very Bye. much. Happy Hanukkah. Take good care. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much. Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's program was Queer Core Talmud, the study of ancient Jewish wisdom texts through the lens of queer experiences. Our guests were Rabbi B'nai Lappi, President and Rosh Yeshiva of Svara a traditionally radical yeshiva. Joe Singer, Magid at the JCCSF, and Rabbi Batshir Torshia, senior Jewish educator at the JCCSF, and Marcy Glazer, former CEO of the JCCSF. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanim Trio, and the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. Thanks for listening.